Kia ora and welcome to episode 5 of Recovering. Our guest is veteran television journalist Miriama Kamo, host of TVNZ's flagship current affairs programme, Sunday, as well as Marae and, previously, 2020. Miriama has chosen to talk with Reverend Frank Ritchie about her reporting on abuse in state care. In particular, the abuse of children who were placed in Porirua Psychiatric Hospital during the 1960s and 70s. A warning, some details shared in the conversation may be distressing. Miriama covered this story all the way back in 2005. It took another 14 years until the Royal Commission of Inquiry was formed, holding its first substantive public hearing in November of 2019. Petra Bagist from Media Chaplaincy in New Zealand. Throughout this series, broadcaster and media chaplain Reverend Frank Ritchie is joined by leading New Zealand journalists to unpack the one story from their career which has impacted them the most, personally and professionally. Here's Frank, speaking with Miriam Kamal. Well, kia ora, Miriama, no mai. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio. As someone who has admired your presence and your work in New Zealand media for a long time, I'm honoured that you would sit down and have a conversation. Oh, thank you so much. It's really my pleasure to be here. I'm excited about the conversation today. Now, this podcast, uh, the episodes that we've had so far, we've been exploring people's careers, some of the pressure points of their careers, and then we've dived into a, a story that has had a big influence and impact on who they are both personally and professionally. We're going to talk with you about the Abuse in State Care Royal Commission of Inquiry that's going on at the moment. Uh, So we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, I'm interested to explore how you got into journalism, how that has played out for you as well. So first, how did you get started? So I was at university and it really was just that that question of what next. Mm. And... I have always loved writing since I was a child. When you know, when you're growing up, you're always thinking, "What will I be when I grow up?" And I was like, "I'll be a teacher. I'll be a writer." I went through this little phase of wanting to be a fashion designer, and this idea of writing and telling stories that was always a really big deal for me. And I did it as far back as I can remember. I loved, absolutely loved it in class when we had our free writing time. And and so I guess my sister, my older sister, had gone to the radio broadcasting course in Christchurch at the New Zealand Broadcasting School and she absolutely loved it and she said to me you know if you if you want to tell stories you should consider journalism and so that's what I did I applied for I think I applied actually for the radio course and for the journalism one and got into the the journalism stream and so and it was wonderful so it was a year long um actually it was two years It it was meant to be two years but at the end of the first year there was a call out from TVNZ for a kids show that they had, which was like a science and discovery show. And they were looking for reporters. And a couple of us on the journalism course ended up getting spots. And so I got a spot on that show. And that was really the beginning of the TV career. You're the first I've heard that's got into it via kids TV. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah exactly. What was that experience like? Because that's really unique. Oh, it was so great. It was such a great introduction to television. Uh, there were seven young reporters. I think I was maybe 21 or 22 at the time. But the youngest reporters were like 17 years old. And it was just amazing, beautiful, gentle way to come into the industry. A wonderful way to learn how to tell stories. Because if you can tell stories to kids, I think you can tell stories to anybody. 
when you're storytelling for children, the thing you have to be so careful about is not to patronise or condescend to them. And so, you know, it really was a brilliant introduction. And we were very well taken care of as well. Janine Morell was the executive producer of the programme and her husband at the time, Tony Palmer, was the producer. And so we were very well held in that space. Yeah, so I'm very grateful for that start. It, mm. was, it was wonderful. When a lot of people start out in journalism, they have this imagination about what it's going to be and the sort of stories that they're going to get to cover. And people generally lean towards certain types of stories. What stories were you most attracted to when you got in? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, you know, I always... So what I think is that people, I I personally am interested in profiles. I love knowing about what drives a person. And I think that just about any story that you tell, you need to start with the heart and and the person. And that's your way of getting to an issue rather than saying, right, I've got this issue that I need to do a story on. So how do we talk about the different parts of that issue? Instead, you find the, the beating heart of the story, which of course is always inside of a human being and their experience of life. So those are the sorts of stories that really interests me. Mm. I like that because I have this fundamental belief that every person is infinitely interesting. Everybody's got a story. A lot of people don't think they do. So it makes every single story interesting. It's so true. It's something I talk about a lot. You know, humans are storytelling creatures. We can't help it. We have to tell the story of who we are. And we've done it since we could, you know, scratch pictures into cave walls. And so I, I totally agree with you. There is... There's no boring person. Mm. There's a boring storyteller who's unable to communicate their story, but there's no boring person. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, Your career has morphed over the years from just the storytelling into presenting. You now front Marae, you front Sunday on TVNZ, both fairly big. The skill set uh, and the pressures of journalism, investigating and telling the story, and the skill set needed to present and carry a TV show are two very different things. How did you land in the presenter role? Uh, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess with that first role at TVNZ on the kids show, we were all reporter presenters. So we all had to, we had to front our own stories. And so that, I guess, was my first experience of it. Oh, well, actually, it's not true, because when I was at broadcasting school, I remember we did this one module where we had to create a documentary. And then there was a question of, well, who's going to front our documentary? And no one really wanted to do it, including me. But I thought, ah, I'll give it a shot. I'll do it. And I remember the very first time in the studio, it, it just felt right. Mm. Like it just felt like, oh, I get this. I, I know how to do this. And it was a it was a revelation. But it wasn't one that really lasted. It wasn't a driving force for me. Um, it felt nice to do it. I got, understood it. But it wasn't what really interested me. In fact, I went behind the camera for a while and I thought that that was where my career was going to be. So I did a few years after the kids' show. I did Back Chat, which was an amazing arts and issue show. I did that for about three and a half years. And then I thought, okay, time to move on, go to the next thing. So I went to Sydney where I, I tried a whole, whole bunch of different jobs and kind of failed in all of them. You know, things like I tried being a receptionist in an ad agency <laughs> and I, there was, I got fired after the second day because <laughs> I cut off the CEO when he was oh, <laughs> on no. an urgent call trying to... <laughs> it was terrible. And so understandably, they let me go. Um, waitressing, I was not much good at that. I sort of found my feet in Sydney when I went to an art gallery and became a manager of the art gallery. And then when I came back to to New Zealand, I thought, well, you know what? I really, what I really love is research. I love finding the stories. 
And so I ended up going behind the camera into production and I became a research director. And I loved it so much that when I got, when I decided that I was going to go overseas um, and do my big OE, I was like, I'm going to go to Britain and I'm going to become a really good director. That's my dream. And not long before I was due to go, probably, I don't know, maybe four months or something before I was due to go, I was called into TVNZ by the new head of News and Current Affairs, Heaton Dyer. And he said, listen, we'd really love you to consider staying and we would like to offer you a role as the Māori correspondent on the news. And I said, oh, that's amazing, but I am actually really don't want to go in front of camera. I really want to go and be a director. And then he said, what well, would you be interested in Holmes, in the Holmes show, Paul Holmes' show? And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he was like, okay, let's, let's tease this out. Let's see where we get with this. But then he got in touch with me and he said, you know what, we've been talking and we, we actually think that you'd be better suited to this new... And by this point, actually, I decided, no, 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 I'm, I'm actually going to go. This is my chance for an we? So when he rang... It was great because I was like, okay, I'm going to let him down, and but hopefully I can keep this relationship so that when I come back, there'll be something. And he said, listen, we we think that you might be better off in this other show that we've created. It's a new current affairs show. We're not going to do 60 Minutes anymore. We're going to do our own thing. And it's called Sunday, and would you be interested? And then that was it because that had secretly always been my dream job. And then I'd let it go. Mm. So for you know years and years, I had dreamed of becoming a 60 Minutes reporter and how amazing that was. But I knew I would never get there because I hadn't done daily news and I thought that, you know, I thought I'd moved on from that dream. I thought it was gone and that, no, actually I really love this new thing of directing. But when he offered me this, it was just like, I have to say yes. Mm. Because that was the dream and that feels right. So, so I said yes to that and Mike Hosking fronted it for a year or two, I think. And then after that, we tried a new format where all of the reporters had to present their own shows. So fine, there's a very long answer to your question. That's good. Um, and so then again, I was in the presenting seat, presenting only my own stories along with the other reporters who were presenting theirs. And again, I was like, oh, this feels, yeah, I get, I get mm. it. I know how to do this. And it was about six years, I think, into doing Sunday. 2020 came along. They were looking for a presenter, reporter and asked me if I would do it. And I was really reluctant to leave Sunday, but I thought I'll give it a shot. Plus I was also a little bit snobbish about 2020 (laughs) because it was tabloid current affairs. And I thought, that's not me. (laughs) I'm, I'm much better than this. But what I discovered in doing 2020 when I finally agreed to do it was that actually storytelling is all the same. Mm. There are just different ways of telling stories. And I came to love that format. The funny thing is that when I took on 2020, I was so snooty about the format that I made no secret of my feelings about the stories. And I would roll my eyes at the end of the stories or make some comment about (laughs) it, you know. And actually that really resonated with the audience um, in a way that I didn't expect. And it was a lot of fun, you know. It was a really wonderful new team, a lot of fun. But what I learned also during that time was that actually my snootiness didn't serve anyone or anything. Mm -hmm. And yes, it was good for a little laugh, but actually... Behind every story are real people with real stories to tell of heartache and challenge and stories that matter, you know, that are about their lives. And so there was this realisation that actually I need to respect this. Mm. 
So yeah, so anyway, I did that for, I think that was probably for about five years or so, and 2020 ended, and, and I was brought back into the Sunday fold again when I decided that I was going to leave the country and go to Germany. And TVNZ said, hey, we know you're going, but would you consider coming on to Sunday? We need a, a presenter for it, and we think you could do it. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a job with Deutsche Welle in Germany. This is such bad timing. But actually, it turned out to be quite a good timing because I also was pregnant, and I would have been working at Deutsche Welle pregnant, and it wasn't probably the most ideal scenario. So I stayed, and that's how I ended up in the presenting seat. Yeah. I'll just be honest. I didn't mind 2020, just like I don't mind a Big Mac every now and then, yeah. a bit of junk. That's right. But I prefer the Sunday format and I even prefer it from 60 Minutes. uh, Oh good. I think it's a good solid (laughs) format. For you as the anchor, the presenter, the pressures of that role are different from those who are just presenting their own stories which you do as well. The public watches and if a story is good the public's going to react. Sometimes it's sympathetic, sometimes there's a challenge there that they want to rise to, sometimes the story makes them angry and then they direct that anger uh, towards the show. Those who know how it works will direct it towards the journalist, but I would imagine sometimes it's directed at you. How do you handle that pressure? So I never engage mm-hmm. in feedback, whether it's positive or negative. Um, I don't look at the comments, particularly on our Facebook page or on our social media channels, because what I know is that there could be a dozen beautiful complimentary comments, but the one that's not will be the one that will stick. And I just don't need that, you know. So I know my vulnerabilities. And so I, you know, I respect those and um, and I don't get engaged in any of the any of the comments at mm. all. And, you know, the, on the flip side, you get too many um, compliments, you might start to believe them, you know. And I don't I don't want to. Yeah, I just want to be me. You know, and be fully aware of my own strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, I accept compliments when they come to me directly, but I don't go searching for them, Mm. you know. It's really good. There's so much wisdom there in an industry where people live and die by ratings, where there's a lot of people pleasers. You want to know that what you're doing is pleasing people. Yeah. It's really wise. How did you learn that lesson? Well, I just, I think over years of recognizing where. I'm vulnerable to people's comments. and But also, I think, you know, growing up Catholic, there's some really great and really not great things about it in terms of how you relate to the world. So there's that wonderful guilt complex, yes. you know, and that can make you, well, made me anyway, um, not receptive to compliments. Mm. Oh, no, 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 I can't accept that compliment. I'll get a big head. I'll start to think, you know, I have tickets on myself. I don't need, you know, I shouldn't go there. Stay humble, stay humble, stay humble. And, I, you know, I still think being humble is a great thing, but there should be limits to everything. You know, you should be able to accept a compliment and you should be able to judge a criticism and take neither too much to heart. Mm. So it's just been a process of learning over mm. time. I would say humility, having grown up in the faith as well. 
not Catholic, but around the stuff that would induce the guilt too. I would say humility, being able to accept a compliment well is also humility. Uh, There's a lot of people who think that humility is just thinking poorly of yourself, as opposed to, I would say, humility is thinking less about yourself, more about others. But when you take that focus off yourself, the ability to receive criticism and receive the compliments goes hand in hand. I love that. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel too. Yeah, Mm. it's a... wisdom I think that you know well for me anyway it's come with age I wish I'd had this sort of realization earlier on in my career but I mean you know it just has taken the time that it's taken to understand that and that you can actually appreciate the things that you do well in fact I I think only this morning I was thinking about that like ah why do I always bat away compliments you know you need to be able to sit with humility and appreciation for the gifts that God's given, you know. And so mm-hmm. if I can get to this wonderful space where I say to myself, Actually, you're really good at that, but not worry that it's going to lead to a big head, yeah. you know, then that that's a pretty, that'd be an amazing place to get to. Yeah, and just be thankful. Be, just thankful be thankful for the gifts. And grateful. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Let's dive into the story that you've chosen, Abuse and Care. This yeah. Royal Commission of Inquiry is a big deal, not only including uh, state institutions, but the church has been through this as well. Yeah. That's the side of this that I've been watching fairly closely and felt disturbed and gutted, and I've shed literal tears over the, some mm. of the stories that I've, that I've heard and how my own faith has played a part in the ripping apart of some people's yeah. lives. Why have you chosen this one? Uh, this story, which was about the abuse of, of children and young people in Porirua Hospital during the 60s and 70s, I did this story in 2005, and for me it was, it, first of all, it was the biggest story I'd ever worked on as a young journalist and, you know, it was big enough that my producer at the time said, do you think you're ready for this? Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, do you think I'm ready for this? I'm glad they asked. Yeah. Rather than just throwing you to, to it. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they they wanted to give it to a more senior journalist. And I thought, nope, I this story is one I get. I understand. I know how I can do this. I know I can do it. And so I fought for the story and then met the most... Gosh, I mean, this was a story that truly, un, you know, had the potential to really undo me. Mm. But because of the strength of the people that were telling their stories, I was able to keep it together too. And I'm pretty classic, old-fashioned journalist. I don't really make, I don't make friends with the people that I do stories on. Um, Can I ask why? Because I actually think this is relatively important. Because I need to be able to stay objective and for me as a journalist it's so important that you're able to remain objective in your storytelling and if you get fuzzy by either liking or disliking your talent then you're not going to be able to tell the story with honesty and truth and in an unbiased way and it's really important to me that I'm able to do that and that's how I honour the story and the people in it is by not bringing my own personal bias to it Um, Can I ask, in the face of that, how you maintain the ability to convey empathy then so that a person, when they're telling you their story and you're being objective, Mm. doesn't feel like they're just being used to tell a story? Yeah, yeah. I have so much respect for people who tell their story, whether it's a sympathetic character or not. The fact that somebody has fronted up and put themselves on the line to tell their story is of enormous importance to me. And I think that we should honour that and respect that, whether or not we like the story they have to tell. And I think some of that goes back to, you know, my parents were prison chaplains, and so I learned very early on not to judge the person. 
and that actually, for example, you know, so many of our people who are in prison are, they are not bad people necessarily. It's very rare that there are bad people in prison, from my judgment anyway. I think what happens is that you get human beings making mistakes. They bring their vulnerabilities and their fallibilities. They bring their inequity, all of the challenges that they've had in their lives to this moment where they end up making a bad decision. They make a mistake. They end up in prison. But that doesn't mean that they are a bad person. And we should honour... Oh, this is a really big deal for me, actually. And maybe this answers the question. This is what I say to my mentees all the time. The whole story is always the best story. So when you meet a part of the story that doesn't make sense to you or doesn't fit the narrative that you've got in your head, that's where you need to stop and say, wait a minute, why do I not want to look at that bit? You know, those tricky dark corners, those bits that just aren't working for you, that you don't want to look at, that you feel aren't serving the story that you have in your head. Why not? Look at that. Because that might be actually where the story lies. So for me, it's really important that we approach every, uh, or that I at least approach every person they meet as an entire person, not just someone who I'm going to sit down and extract a story from but actually they come and and this um, brings in some of my Maori worldview they come with their tipuna their ancestors behind them they come with their families their children their husbands their wives their friends uh, they come with all of their vulnerabilities and so it's really important to me that I honour and respect that and if I get blinded by the fact that I like their personality and I'd really like to be their friend then I'm not going to honour their story as fully as I should or vice versa, if I don't like them, mm-hmm. you know, if I allow myself to start judging them one way or another, then I feel like my ability to have a clear pathway through to telling their story wholly is compromised. So mm-hmm. I'm very careful about not making friends, um, which doesn't stop me from really liking people mm-hmm. or really disliking them. It just means I don't bring them right in. But there was one woman in that Porirua story who did become my friend. I mean, I think when you're working so closely with people and getting right into their lives, you know, occasionally that is going to happen, that people stick, you know. And so she did. After the story went to air, we stayed in touch. And um, and then I helped her with feedback on a book that she wrote, an amazing book called In the Hands of Strangers. Uh, her name's Beverly Jackson. So she and I have remained friends over the years, and she was a teenager. She was 14 when she went into Bodhidoa Hospital, and so I learned a lot about what happened there via her and some of the other ex-patients of Bodhidoa Hospital. You know, the youngest ones were like eight years old. Mm. You know, eight-year-old children in mental institutions is shocking. Mm. Like I, I just don't know how you survive that. And in fact, one of the people that we interviewed, he was eight when he went in. And then he had this knock sheet as an adult that was just miles long of basically petty crime. And his only wish was, can you wipe my slate clean? I've, I've committed no major crimes, but I can't get a mortgage. I can't get insurance for my belongings. There were so many areas of his life that he wasn't able to fully embody because of his knock sheet. And he said, wipe my slate clean. What I have here is the result of you putting me into a mental institution when I was eight. I just think that's the most reasonable request ever. Yeah. Totally reasonable. Considering what these kids saw and went through, so many of them. Most of them were teenagers, but these were healthy young people who were put in with the most unwell members of our society, and they were punished by being put in with the seriously ill patients. 
Uh, that eight-year-old told a story of the nurses at the time punishing him by putting him into a cell with a well-known child molester. And what they would do is push him in there and, you know, the child molester would be sitting on the bed and then he would stand up and come for the little boy and at the last moment the nurses would pull him out again laughing. And that was that was just a bit of fun, you know. And then there were the punishments like... Um, ECT without anaesthetic, peraldehyde injections, just all, sexual and physical abuse of all sorts of these children. Mm. You know, this inquiry is a long, long, long time coming. You know, we told this story in 2005, but these kids were being abused in the 60s and 70s. And actually way before that, you know, there's a lot of documentation of the ways that our mental institutions did not work properly and made more vulnerable the patients they'll need to take care of. Can we just point out here, because there might be people who hear some of the stuff that, that's being investigated and go, oh, it was just how they cared for people back in the day. They were just a bit wayward. But what you've just pointed out is that these aren't just carers who had wayward tactics of trying to cure something. Mm. I mean, when you push a kid in with a child molester and you pull them out laughing, mm. that's vindictive. That yeah. is straight-up abuse, not just misguided care. Yeah. Yeah. and But one thing I would say about this and about a lot of the abuse, and one of the stories that we told back in 2005, we had a man that I admire enormously, a man who did abuse patients, but I admire him because he was living in England at the time. We managed to track him down and he came back to New Zealand. He flew back. He said, I need to front up and I need to explain to you what was going on there, and I need you to know that the patients are telling the truth. And I know because I did it too. And I still feel emotional when I think mm. about this man because what an incredible gift that he gave in saying, you know what, I saw it, I know it, I did it, and, I, and I'm sorry for it. And what did he explain, what another ex-staff member explained, a woman who did not abuse any of the patients, she left before she said, I was vulnerable to doing that. I could see where I was heading, so I left. Mm. Both of them explained that there was a culture of abuse and that the, often the staff were vulnerable and as at much risk of being abused as the patients were. So there was a culture of drinking, of taking drugs, of sitting around. You know, the way they explained it was that you either had to sort of join in or leave. And, of course, you know, a lot of them needed money to pay for their lives and their families. And so I you know I I would be very surprised if any staff member ever came to those hospitals thinking awesome I've got some vulnerable mm-hmm. patients that I can abuse. I think what probably happened was that they caught, got caught up in the culture of not caring for the patients, of letting them run wild, of not um responding when they were vulnerable and needed care. Uh, and I think that's a a human fallibility and vulnerability that I think probably needs to be acknowledged because if we don't, then it can happen again in other contexts. What mm. is the culture that we're building that allows people to actually do their jobs well and take care of others, that they don't get an empathy burnout? Or what is the culture that we're building that allows abuse? And so, you know, I'm, I'm at pains to say that, of course, very many of the staff there did not abuse patients and very many of them worked really hard to do the right thing. But it was easy in the culture that was built to not do that as well. Mm. Yeah. 
as someone who's interested in how things heal uh, and how society heals and how some of this trauma is healed and what would be really easy to do is pick this other group to scapegoat and to demonize so in this instance Mm. the perpetrators but just as the victims have stories the perpetrators have stories and the hardest part of my faith is the challenge to love your enemy pray for those who persecute and I remember being involved with Tear Fund sorry a bit of a spiel I was involved with uh, Tear Fund and we were just getting involved in sex trafficking around the world and how how we would uh, help people out of that and then how we would help healing and I remember reading one story that got me particularly angry about the perpetrators and I remember saying to someone, they need the death penalty. Mm. I'm a person of faith. I'm totally against the death penalty. But that anger yeah. just overtook me. And I remember reading about an organization that would pray for the perpetrators. And it was this huge challenge to me at the time that if I truly wanted healing in this, then yes, the perpetrators need to face the legal consequences of what they were doing. But the problem would continue if they didn't find healing and transformation as well. So to hear someone front up and hear that bit of your discussion, I think is really valuable. Yeah, I think it's really important. Again, it goes back to that notion of what is the whole story? What's the whole story of the person, the institution of our society, of our communities? What's the whole story? What leads people to offend? So I'm an ambassador for Pillars, um, which looks after uh, children of prison inmates. And if you're a child of a prison inmate, you're nine times more likely to end up in prison or following your parents' footsteps than your, you know, than your mate that doesn't have this issue. And there are all sorts of vulnerabilities that lead to offending. You know, for example, if you're a child of an inmate, first of all, you're missing a parent. So you're missing one structure in your house. And you could argue that maybe that's a good thing for the kid, but actually that's an income stream gone. That's another set of arms gone that could have held you and made you feel better. This stigma of a parent being in prison can lead to trauma for the child, you know, the embarrassment and humiliation of it. You know, like kids can end up bedwetting and and showing behaviours that they wouldn't have before the parent went into prison. That's not to say that the child wouldn't necessarily be better off without that parent for a while, for a break, but it is to say just let's recognise that actually it makes the child more vulnerable. Now, how do we put something around that kid to lessen the likelihood of them following their parent's footsteps. What's the whole story of this kid? How can we make differences here that actually serve not just that kid and their family, but the community and the country as a whole? Because we have such, we have a high crime rate, we have a very high imprisonment rate. How does that serve our country? Does it actually, given also that we know that 60 to 80% of our inmate population have mental health issues? We pay $100,000 per prisoner per year to keep them there. Well, wouldn't that 100000 be better spent on prevention, you know, or helping with rehabilitation or or funding restorative justice sessions, you know, wouldn't that be a better way to spend the money? The other thing is we put them in prison and we don't expect anything of them. Mm. Really? Is that how we want to treat our community so that when these people come out, they're more vulnerable, more angry, more likely to offend again? And that hurts all of us. So... I don't think our prison service is working as as it should. I think there's so much we could do there that isn't just about, you know, people think that you're being kindly to the to the offender and forgetting the victim. First of all, the offenders are often victims themselves, but it's not about necessarily doing what's right for the offender. It's about what's right for the country. Mm. And we want safer communities. If, if that's what we want, then we need to look at the offender and why they've done what they've done. Mm. Yeah, I love your support of Pillars. 
different story, but I grew up with our, my dad. He was an alcoholic who took off when I was a few months old, and my mother was mentally ill. There was a lot of stuff that I would uh, say was traumatic in my childhood without going into detail. as a bedwetter as a kid for many years. Yeah. So uh, to see those children being supported uh, means a lot to me. Can I ask, and feel free not to say, how old were you when you were doing this Potirua story? Wow, let me think. I must have been, I don't know, 31 or something like that. Okay, so yeah. still fairly early in the piece. But it seems to me, because you mentioned uh, that your producer offered to give that to someone else, but you thought you had what it took to, to do the story. Yeah. How much do you think your childhood and your upbringing gave you the tools needed to be able to say that? Because the prison chaplaincy of your mother, mm. uh, being involved in the prisons, going in and doing services and being around those inmates, I would imagine there's a lot you've said here that would be informed by that. Oh, completely. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So we would, you know, mum and dad would run their services most Sundays. Mum was at Christchurch Women's, dad was at Paparua, and um, both of them were at Rolleston and Paparua too, but mum was primarily at um, Christchurch Women's. So we would go mostly with mum to her services and then um, occasionally with dad to his. And so it was a really... Um, I mean, I'm just so grateful for that exposure as a child to to prisons because we got to see that actually they're not bad monsters in prison. They're just human beings who've made mistakes and who've brought everything in their lives to the moment that they made that mistake. And so it was a really incredible gift to be able to go with them and to see that. On top of that, mum and dad were social workers and, you know, they well, dad was, but they both were activists really in the social justice space you know they supported pillars as it was being built in fact we lived across the road from the founder Verna McFallon who's just published her own book about what happened with her family and how they were torn apart by the crime of her husband and how that really affected her children and I was friends with one of her kids Lisa so the notion of people being going to prison was not a fearful thing to me and you know, mum and dad filled the house with, I mean, you know, we had um, Maori leaders, we had nuns and priests, we had revolutionaries and agitators and activists, all, you know, it was just very common. And, you know, we'd hear their conversations and their discussions, we were part of them, they'd take us on protest marches and that sort of thing. So yes, you're absolutely right. A lot of what I believe and live by comes absolutely from that childhood exposure. Mm. Yeah. And my guess is the answer to this question is that how did the Porirua story that early in your career not eat you up? How did it not make you angry and bitter? So as a journalist, um, you're exposed to stories all the time that could that have the potential to do that. And I, I feel very strongly that you have to keep a um, respectful distance from it, you know, so that you can honourably tell the story in its fullness. Um, if you get angry, you become blinded. Mm. Yeah, so um, it didn't it didn't eat me up, but it did affect me deeply, and it stuck with me right through my entire career. And so, yeah, you know, it's been great to see the inquiry rolling out, even though it's taken far too long for us to get here. It's good that people are able to tell their stories, and I hope that it comes to a point where recommendations are made in twenty twenty three that compensation is made for these. And you know, compensation is not going to make up for what happened to people. But it's a way of acknowledging their loss 
Mm. Yeah. You'd mentioned just then that it affected you. It did. Yeah. When I watch you, and as we talk, I sense uh, lightness, but also a mana, uh, gravitas. But that lightness, there doesn't seem to be that weight that could weigh someone down when they encounter a story like that. So when you say it affected you, how did it affect you? Um, I felt grief about it. I was angry about it. I was horrified, actually. Probably more than angry, I was horrified Mm -hmm. by what we did to these young people. And I remember one of the things I would say when I would tell people about it was, you know, some of these kids, I remember Bev in particular, when she was in Porirua Hospital, she didn't have anyone that she knew loved her, including her own parents. Mm-hmm. You know, she there was no one in the world that she could sit down and say, well, this is happening and it's really terrible, but you know what? I've got the love of my mum or whatever, you know, my, my mate there loves me. She There was no one that she could sit down and say, this person loves me. She knew people liked her, but she knew there was a lot of danger in her life. But that to me, that was a heartbreaker. I couldn't imagine what that would be like to have n- no certainty that there was one person at least in the world that loved you and had your back. So that really, yeah, that really stuck with me and um, it did really affect me. But I don't think that, as I've said, I don't think that I would be able to show proper respect and ability to tell the story fulsomely and honourably if I got too caught up in my own emotions. You know, it's not about me. Mm. It's about making sure that other people are facilitated in telling their story. Mm. And so that's why I've been able to keep some distance from the things that make me angry. And actually, you know, Marae, there's a lot of stories that come up in Marae that actually do make me visibly angry. And, and I don't always hide it, but I try to. You know, it's always a reminder to me, just try and remember that you've got to have respect Give the story the space that it deserves. It's not about you, Mitty. It's about what needs to come from the story. So, yeah, it's always, I think it's always a bit of a challenge for storytellers, for journalists, that you always, I think we're not well served when we're blinded by our anger. Mm. Yeah. How is it watching some of those people that you encountered in the Porirua story now have to almost go through their storytelling again uh, yeah. with this? God, it's so traumatizing. It's, but on the other hand, I know that also for many it's been a relief. Mm. A burden has been lifted. They're being listened to finally, and they've got a space where they're able to tell their story. But it is it is also traumatizing for them. So I'm really pleased that we have this forum now that they can really you know tell what happened to them and to be believed. You know I think that's a really important thing. There's a paradox there for those telling their story. The fact that walking through what they've been through can be traumatic and the retelling and the memories and the emotions uh, and the reconnections that go with storytelling. But there's a healing in the storytelling as well. It's my sense that if a journalist does their job well, that they can be involved in both of those things. They're helping both of those things to play out. But that, when you're dealing with stories like this, involves a terrible amount of care yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, there is a lot. But it's, it's one of the amazing um, gifts of this job is that if you can sit down and help you know, facilitate someone telling their story and that if they can come out of it feeling lighter, that's an enormous, enormous privilege. And it's probably one of the big reasons that I have been able to stay in this job so long and love it. You know, I still love mm. this job. I still have a passion to get up and every day and do it. That objectivity you talked about earlier – 
I'm interested in how that gets maintained so that when you're at home, you're there for your family uh, and they're not getting the stuff that could come from some of that storytelling. Is there anything that you intentionally do in order to maintain that? No, and actually that's something that probably... um you know, I went into menopause early. I'm an endometriosis sufferer. And what happens when you go into menopause is your hormones go wild and you become more vulnerable mm. to emotion. And And it was around about that time that I recognised that the work was weighing heavier than it had ever before and that I needed to figure out a way of um, managing that. And so apart from going on the right medications to manage the hormones, I think for me really it was just about a recognition that um, I'm more vulnerable to taking the weight and burden of these stories than I have been before. And I am in danger of bringing that home. And I can feel that what I'm not coping with well is actually affecting my household. And it was actually a real revelation to me because I'd never really felt that before. I'd always been able to keep a very healthy distance. So I feel like... I don't know, I guess things have balanced up again and I'm back in that healthy space. Um, But yeah, it's something that I think as a storyteller who really cares about the people that they're dealing with, that you do have to be careful. You do have to watch yourself. And if you are getting grumpy or if you are feeling the weight of, of of your storytelling or even just if you're watching the news and you're feeling like it's weighing on you, which for so many people it is right now, what can you do to to manage that? And there's a million different ways that people manage their stress. You know, of course, there's all the physical things you can do. But one of the things I did recently was went on a week-long retreat. And I've never taken, I've never pulled the plug for myself and gone off and done something on my own. So, and that was amazing. Yeah. And so, you know, it might be things like that that you really just pull the plug and say, actually, you know what? I need this space for me on my own. Mm. It would seem to me that would take a good level of self-awareness to recognise that that's going on and to intentionally uh, respond to whatever you notice when you're when you're aware, mm. uh, as opposed to just reacting and going with the flow and then at some point exploding or burning out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to, yeah, as a storyteller, I think you just always have to be on the ball, questioning yourself, making sure that you are remaining objective, that you, your anger or your feelings about it aren't Im- impacting on the facts and the truth of the story, the wholeness of the story, and that you're not carrying it all home with you because your family doesn't deserve that. They deserve the wisdom that you may have been able to grow from from the story, but not all of the heavy horror, horrible bits as well. Mm. With the abuse and care inquiry, what would you hope to be the outcome? Now, I ask because as a minister uh, who's involved in the National Council of the denomination that I'm a part of, we're a relatively young denomination, but there's a whole lot of good process being built in, and there's a reckoning going on. Everything is being checked to make sure that wherever there are vulnerabilities, these things cannot happen. Mm. It's hard to be foolproof when you're dealing with humans. But what would you hope the outcome would be because there's there's decades of deep-seated hurt here now people's lives ripped apart monetary compensation can go some way to offering something but it can't it can't heal everything yeah what would you hope the outcome would be apart from the money I mean, I guess what I hope is that there is some structure put in place. And I know that there is actually within this inquiry, there is a built-in counselling aspect to it that people will be able to be paired up and access given to 
manage mental health and that sort of thing. I'm not sure how robust that is, to be mm. honest. I don't know what how that works at all, but I know that it is a consideration in the inquiry. But if that's the case, then I hope that that would be ongoing because once you've told your story, yes, there could be a, a beautiful lightness that comes from that. And hey, maybe you might get some money and that would be awesome because you know, that might go some way to recovering some of the losses that have come from you being decimated in your life. But I guess I hope that there is... Number one, there's an ongoing practical structure that people can access to manage their mental health and their needs. But that number two, as a community in a country, that we remain alive to the things that didn't work, that we got wrong and that we accept it and that we learn from it and we do things differently going forward. And of course, so it's wonderful to hear what you're doing in, you know, in your faith institution, that there is a real reckoning of that. Um, I spoke to a monk recently, actually, and said to him, you know, what do you think when you're a traditional Catholic man? How do you feel when you look at what's happened? I mean, even recently with the discovery of these um, children's bodies Mm. in Canada you know how does that make you feel and he said it is horrific and he said and what what we need to remember is the church itself is not an evil institution but there are people in it who are not I mean I think he even said who are evil and who should not be there and that is just the fallibility of humanity and that's something that we need to watch at all times that actually that we don't turn a blind eye to people behaving in ways that hurt others and that we change our processes when we know that it's happened, that we act immediately. And then he expressed a real care for the victims of the church, you know, over however many decades. And I just thought that was really important that actually, um, you know, a man of the cloth was saying, you know what, it, it is so wrong that people were treated so badly and we should not turn a blind eye to this and we have in the past and that was wrong. Mm. So, you know, it's that kind of attitude that I think is really important going forward, that we change the way that we do things when we recognise that we've done it wrong. Yeah, I like that. I resonate so much. Uh, Future of journalism in New Zealand as we close off this conversation, what do you think it looks like? I don't know. That's kind of the exciting thing about it. It's changing so much. There are so many ways that you can tell stories now. People who are not journalists are able to tell stories and and that that is both a good thing and a worrying thing I have a real um, I really believe that we have to have trained curators of news content the rise of social media is a great thing uh, but it's also a very concerning thing you know it creates those echo chambers and the algorithms narrow down your worldview to so that you're only being fed the things that you want to hear, whether they make you furious or whether they make you happy. And the ability for people who are not trained curators to be able to see their way through that is worrying to me. I don't want people to feel confirmed in a worldview that's not necessarily correct. As journalists, we have to, more than ever, I think, there's a battle for objectivity and making clear for ourselves and for others when we are expressing an opinion or when we are telling a balanced, unbiased story and making clear the difference there. And I think a lot of opinion is being, at the moment, is being is being passed as journalism, as a balanced story, when it actually, you know, it's not. So that worries me. Um, I am very interested in the whole free speech debate. You know, I, uh, I'm very concerned about how we make sure that we continue to tell the whole story instead of saying, actually, I don't like that. You should not even express that view. 
Keep that to yourself. Don't tell anyone what you feel or think. And we will crucify you if you do. You know, we're, it feels a bit like the crucible in many ways to me, actually. And this cancel culture, the sense that somebody can be absolutely annihilated for expressing a view that people don't like is of enormous concern to me. I think it's really important that people are able to say what they think so that they can be investigated and chewed over and interrogated and for people to make up their own minds. I think once you start pushing someone's point of view down, that's where it festers mm. and that's where things go wrong for us. So I'm, I'm really that's mm. a big deal for me going forward in our journalism industry is that we recognise the risk of that and that we continue to play our role as curators of well-told, factual, balanced stories. Mm. Midiyama, it has been a pleasure. And I want to specifically mention, because the word has popped into my head a million times as we've been having this kōrero, wisdom. You just seem to bring to the table a whole lot of wisdom, and I think Aotearoa is all the better for it. So thank Thank you. you. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you very much. And it's been a real pleasure to sit down with you. Thank you. Thanks to Miriama for sharing your story. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series. And thanks to you for listening. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who might find it valuable. And remember to follow to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee's on us. Mm